What does it take to live a compelling Christian life? Who's the audience for our Christianity? The truth of the matter, we forget that. We think that we are the primary uh, customer and that we're the primary audience of our own Christianity. Welcome to Living a Legacy, featuring the Bible teaching ministry of Crawford Lorenz. Stay with us as Crawford continues in his series, His Church, based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church of Colossae. The messages we feature each week come from Crawford's 15 years as senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia. But his involvement in Christian ministry spans some 50 years, including leadership in Campus Crusade for Christ and in church planting. Crawford recently retired from Fellowship Bible Church and now mentors those in Christian leadership through his organization, Beyond Our Generation. Well, today we'll hear the first part of the message, Up and Out. Crawford highlights the Apostle Paul's admonition to live a vertical and horizontal life. Both are needed to be effective in our mission. Our text, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Here's Crawford Loretz on Living a Legacy. We're wrapping up this series on the book of Colossians. Now, now I'm not going to do all the final greetings there, although I was tempted to add another message dealing with that. There's some really rich things in those final greetings. But I, I, the bulk of Paul's discussion really ends on the climax there in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But again, I want to drop it back in its context, and I hope I don't bore you by this. If you've been here through the series, you know I virtually every Sunday say, give a little bit of an update. But just, you have to understand the reason why for, uh, the book was written. Any book of the Bible that you read, it's really helpful to know the author's intent when he wrote the book. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes this book. He didn't start the church. It's one of the, I think it's the only letter that he wrote to a church that he didn't establish. Uh, Epaphras started the church. Paul's in jail. Epaphras comes and visits him, gives him this glowing report about these believers in Colossae, so much so that it grips his heart. I mean, in a profound way. And he begins the book by just bursting out in prayer for these incredible folks and a glowing report that he hears from from uh, his friend and buddy and colleague in the ministry, Epaphras. And so as he, he's praying, uh, the book begins to exalt Christ as the head and leader of his church. Parenthetically, the, the companion book to Colossians is Ephesians, which Paul speaks of the body of Christ, uh, the church being the body of Christ. Here he speaks of Christ being the head of his body, the church. And so you have, have him singing through all of this and the high watermarks and challenging the Colossians to think up here and look at the person of Christ. And then he turns around and does some application. That's chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 3 and 4, he applies this. He says, if this is the beauty of our Savior, then the beauty of our Savior needs to be seen in your life. This is not esoteric. It is not just head stuff. Not being about Bible brains, but truth was given not to satisfy our curiosity, but to transform our lives. I just quoted Howard Hendricks. And, and, and this truth about Jesus is to permeate your reality, is to permeate your life. You to look like him. So therefore, put off the old man, put on the new man, put to death sin. Let the beauty of the Savior shine forth in your heart and life. 
And now we come to the end, and Paul, again, is like some grand crescendo if you've ever gone to a symphony of sewing. It, it be, it, there's theme and theme redundancy and variations on a theme and coming back to the theme in a grand crescendo. And that's what he does here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Let me read these words to you. It's a brief section, and then we'll say a few words about the words. Wrapping this up, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may, uh, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What a fitting way to close this letter. So the question I want to raise, and I think the question that Paul is raising here, although it's not, the question isn't specifically stated, it hovers over what he says. The question is this, what does it take to live a compelling Christian life. And as you read the letter and you read it in its entirety, you understand that Paul is not talking about a, a Christian life in which we're always struggling, in which it's always about us. But why are we here and what does it take to live a compelling Christian life? Who's the audience for our Christianity? The truth of the matter, we forget that. We think that we are the primary uh, customer and that we're the primary audience of our own Christianity. I mean, there's a brand of biblical narcissism, if I could put those two words together, that we absorb in our country. We just think that our walk with God is about my walk with God, my personal happiness, and getting my stuff together to satisfy me. That's what it's really all about. And so you have this, you have these, you have this, it's almost like, it's almost like many churches or Bible studies are just a coalition of independent contractors. It was all about us. But as Paul phrases these words here, he, he's talking about missional Christianity. And he's actually going in two directions here. He says the axis of our Christianity, we, we live vertically, but we also impact horizontally. And we are the conduit for these two things. So what does it take? And I want to say in these few brief verses that he basically makes two statements. He, he says it takes these two things. Number one, it takes tapping into his power. And then secondly, living his plan. There's no cheap way of becoming a compelling Christian. Becoming a compelling Christian, it doesn't mean that, you know, you dress like, uh, that you dress like your contemporaries and you use the right slang expressions and you, you study the idioms and culture of the time and, and uh, you plug into your moment in history and you make sure that you reflect what's going on about you and you're just a cool Christian. That's not what he's talking. Being cool and compelling are not necessarily the same thing. He's not talking about being a cool Christian. What he's talking about is being a compelling Christian being a compelling Christian. So, there's this vertical and horizontal reality that must be expressed in and through our lives, and that's what he's talking about here. 
Uh, uh, there's a dynamic vertical connection and there is an attractive outward connection. A dynamic vertical connection and an attractive outward connection. Don't switch them around. For the first gives power to the second. Compelling does not mean simply to lead with an attractive outward connection. It's kind of like a dog chasing a car. What is he going to do when he catches it? No, no. Becoming compelling and attracting others is being a model of what they need to be. So Paul begins, first of all, by talking about tapping into his power or prayer. Prayer. Now, you'll see in a, in a few moments that this kind of prayer, what he's talking about is, is the very power and presence of God being released through our lives in such a way that it advances gospel living. So, it's interesting to me, just a little observation parenthetically, that the book begins by Paul passionately expressing his prayer commitment to, th to them, and it ends by soliciting them to pray. To pray. I don't think that's accidental. Because I think what Paul is saying is that all meaningful movement, everything that, 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 that takes place in the name of Jesus is instituted by God's intervention and by prayerful dependence. Prayerful dependence. Well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So in verse 2, he's talking about how we should approach prayer. And again, at the expense of being too granular here, I want to point out Three, three statements, three phrases that he uses that speaks to the urgency and the intentionality of prayer. The very first statement that he uses here in verse, uh, verse 2, uh, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Or one translation says, devote yourself to prayer. I think I, I like continue steadfastly over against devote because I think the Greek expression here has more to do with the, 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 the idea of persistence in prayer. What, what he's saying is that, look, 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 prayer, prayer is not a cheap thing, okay? Prayer is not just some emotional thing that you, you feel like praying, so you pray. No, there, there, is, there is intentional discipline and perseverance associated with effective praying. That's the reason why those of us, including yours truly, who live on this side of town, we've got a few more options, have more of a difficult time with praying. Some of the greatest prayer movements in the world, interestingly enough, is among people who are poor, working class, and they sense their need. And the reason for that is obvious. They don't have the kind of resources, contacts, opportunities, and this kind of thing. And what Paul is saying is this. Listen, 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 listen to me. <laughs> you, you, Crawford, you have got to discipline yourself to battle and fight in prayer. It echoes what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, isn't it? Luke summarizes that parable. He says that Jesus spoke a parable 
concerning prayer, and the point of the parable, Luke says at the very beginning, is that men ought always to pray and not to give up. That we're to always pray, always pray, always pray, and not give up, not faint. And then he tells a story. It's amazing, this uh, 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 interesting contrast. He tells a story of an unjust judge, power broker, resourceful, recognition, all kinds of stuff at his disposal, and this widow. Widow back then, you had no advocacy. And the point is, is that the woman wore him down. Now, he's not saying that, you know, prayer wears God down. That's not the point of it. The point of it has to do with the discipline in praying. There is no sustained life transformation or impact until we are thoroughly convinced that we always need God's intervention. And our prayer lives will not get off the dime until we are convinced that we always need his intervention. So the very first phrase is that, uh, look, uh, Paul says basically prayer is not a spiritual luxury. It's an essential factor. It It is as vital to us as breathing. We have to pray. So he says, Crawford, what you need to do is discipline your wandering mind, go to bed earlier, get up, pray when you don't feel like it, because whether or not you feel like it, you are convinced that you need God's intervention. Then he says, watchful, be watchful in it. The word watchful means awake. It means alert, alert. And here I think what Paul is saying is that you need to guard against spiritual drowsiness that's caused by the distractions of the world and the devil. I think this is a tad bit of allusion to the the, the warfare side of praying. Prayer does not take place in a neutral, affirming environment. Prayer takes place in the midst of a sinful world. Prayer is to be exercised from people who are prone to wander like yours truly, folks who are distracted by all kinds of issues. And by the way, by the way, this is not a cliche. The enemy of our souls, he's most, he's most, He's most intimidated when you do two things. He's most intimidated when your Bible is open and your eyes are on that page. And he's most intimidated when your knees are bent. And so Paul is saying, hey, look, this is not for the faint-hearted because he understands, the enemy understands that when you are pouring out your heart to God, you are tapping into to eternal resources, the resources of heaven. You're talking about a living God who has the ability to do everything that he decrees. He says, be watchful. Intentional, right? but also vigilant. Then he uses the expression, with thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting to me when Paul talks about prayer, how often he couples prayer with thanksgiving. 
Oh, the classic verse is uh, Philippians 4, 6, isn't it? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Here it is, prepositional phrase, with thanksgiving. Why does he couple prayer with thanksgiving? I think for two reasons. Number one, the expression of our gratitude for our Heavenly Father taking care of his children. Of his children. But also, I think more, more, probably more specifically, is the expression, the anticipatory expression of faith. Of faith. Why are we thankful? Because we expect God to work. We know that this is not some little exercise that we're going through that's futile. We, we didn't just pull out the mat and get, get in, put our leg around our neck and go, om, om, om. boy, I feel better. Prayer is not venting to God. Boy, I got that off my chest. No, when we pray, we're talking to the God of the universe. We're talking to one that invites us to come boldly to his throne of grace. We're talking to the one whose son said, ask, seek, knock. We're talking to the one who says, no good thing would I withhold from them who walk uprightly before me. So we pray with thanksgiving. We pray with great, great confidence in our great God. So Paul says, look, I want you to know that I, I, when I tell you to pray, it is, a, it is a profound commitment. And discipline yourself to do it. Now, there's warfare. There's plenty of distractions, so be watchful in it, but also be thankful so you don't give up on it. God's going to answer. So, our approach to prayer is here in verse 2. But in verses 3 and 4, He's actually, by way of illustration, talking about our primary assignment in prayer. He appeals to them to pray for him. Now, he told them that he prayed for them, and he told them what he prayed for. And in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, now he flips the script and he says, look, I'm needy too. Boy, am I ever needy. Now, listen to what he asked them to pray for. Verse 3 says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is remarkable to me. The power of this is found in what he doesn't ask him to pray for. What he doesn't ask him to pray for. He doesn't ask him to pray for his ingrown toenail. Now, mind you, you know he's in jail when he writes this, right? You know why he's in jail? He's in jail for doing the very thing that he's asking them to pray that he continues to do. He's to share the gospel. He doesn't ask them and say, well, you know, it's kind of cold and damp in this place, and you pray that they give me some extra blankets so I don't get 
chilly at night. Uh, you know, will you pray for this cough that I have? Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that. And by the way, will you pray that, man, that, you know, I'm going back to court next week, and will you pray that they'll have some mercy on me and I'll be able to be released and get back to the church planning stuff that I love so much. Will you pray about that? Now, by the way, by the way, I'm not knocking those prayer requests. Those are legitimate things that he could pray about. But the point here that I want you to understand is the essence thing, the most important emphasis in the entire world is what Paul is most concerned about. If none of this other stuff happens, I, I don't want to fumble the ball on this one. I don't want to mess this one up. And I'm here on assignment. Will you pray for me? And by the way, by the way, uh, the, the, almost every letter that Paul writes, he appeals for people to pray for him. And most of those appeals have to do with the advance and spread of the gospel, whether it is Romans 15, 30, Ephesians 6, 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. All he says, would you pray for me? Now this blows my mind because he's in jail. But you know what he's thinking about in jail, don't you? Philippians chapter 1, he's in jail, and they're asking, well, how you doing, Paul? Paul said, I'm doing great. Yo, dude, are you living in denial? You're in jail. What are you doing? You do great. No, I'm doing wonderful. You see, here's what's happening. These guards have to watch me. And as they're watching me and they're close to me, I'm actually writing you today, and they're looking at me, what are you writing, Paul? You know, there's a church at Philippi. You know what the word church means? Yeah, this group of people at Philippi, and they're important to me. You know why they're important to me? Because they believe what I believe. Let me tell you what I really believe. And these guards are getting, they're giving their lives to Jesus. So Paul continues, he said, will, will, will you pray for me? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to blow this. I don't, I don't want to blow this. He wants open doors for the gospel. Paul knew that prayer was the igniting factor in his life and ministry. You say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. Well, neither am I, but let me tell you something here for all of us. Don't get it twisted. Prayer is the igniting factor in your life and impact. The greatest gift anybody could ever give to me I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The greatest gift you could ever give to me is to say to me, Crawford, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Crawford Loretz here on Living a Legacy. It's so easy to think of prayer as just something to do before we eat or when we're in need of something. The Apostle Paul clearly saw the value in prayer and used it to fuel his desire and call to share the gospel. Well, next week, we'll conclude this message titled Up and Out, and we'll also bring to a close this multi-week series called His Church. Now, if you missed out on some of these messages, you can stream them on our website or download them for free to your phone or computer. Start with livingalegacy.org and look for past programs or click on the link MP3, livingalegacy.org. We're grateful for your emails. Thanks for letting us know how God is using the program in your walk with Christ. You can jot us a quick note on our website. Look for the contact link 
at livingalegacy.org. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. Thank you for joining us today. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.